are going to be in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 this morning, and I hope that each of you brought your thinking caps. How many of you are awake, alert, alive, enthusiastic this morning? Anybody? All right, we've got a few of you. The rest of you are exhausted, tired, and feeling dead, right? Uh, If you've got a notebook and pen, today would be a good day to use it. We're going to go through a lot of scripture, and the first portion, the first big portion of my teaching today is going to be a lot of almost just learning, just, just teaching. Uh, It's not going to be a ton of preaching. It's going to be helping you to understand a theme throughout the Bible. And so I hope that you've come, and even though it's kind of dark and kind of warm, I I pray that it will excite you that you're learning about God's Word. One question that every Christian should consider every day of their life is, how do I become more like Jesus? Now, this is at the heart of being a Jesus follower, being a disciple of Jesus. How do I become more like Jesus? Jesus. Jesus himself is quoted in Luke 6.40 as saying this, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. He's speaking this to his own disciples, and that passes on to us. When we are fully trained, we will be like our rabbi, Jesus, our Savior, our King. And so, as a pastor, I hear people questioning Because raise your hand if you feel like you are fully imaging Jesus to the world. Raise your hand. Yeah. So it's a big question for us as Christians. He says this, so it must be possible to an extent. But the questions that come to me as pastor is, um, is it that I need more of the Holy Spirit? Is it that I need something that I don't have? Do I need to wait for God to give it to me? Or is it that I need more faith in the Spirit that has already been given? What is it, Pastor, that will help me to finally break through? Well, I want to remind you of what Peter says to the Christians throughout the early church. This is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And I, I bolded a couple of places here because what they're saying is that he has given us everything we need. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice that past tense, has granted, he's already given it. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And this is what's called the inaugurated kingdom, the here but not yet. We've been given it, but yet it's not fully in place, and so we're striving after it and longing for it, But what Peter is clear about here is that every justified believer has what they need to grow into the image of Christ. If you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been given the empowerment by the Holy Spirit. You've been given his word, and it is a process from here on out, taking one step forward, and if you're like me, half a step back, three steps forward, five steps back, right? But we're always moving towards the Lord. So how do we do it? How do we, as Jesus put it, become fully trained? Well, what I hope to unpack today is what Paul is telling us, and he's telling us that we need the Holy Spirit to do so. To grow up into the maturity of Christ, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. But what I want to give you today by going through the scripture is that we don't necessarily need it in the individualistic way that many of us think or have been taught. To grow into the image of Christ, we need to be a truly charismatic church, utilizing each of the people and the gifts that they hold by the power of the Spirit that dwells within our midst. And so today, we're going to be looking at the third and last part of this mini-series within the larger series of Ephesians that I've titled The Truly Charismatic Church, Part 3. Now, hopefully, this isn't like most movies that have a Part 3, where Part 3 is the worst part. Hopefully, this will be the best for you, uh, but we'll see after the service. Since chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul has been discussing the work of the Spirit in building up the church. And we've seen in Ephesians 4 that he's discussing the gifts of the Spirit, the unity of the body, and then the diversity of those gifts as the Spirit uses it. And as we've progressed through the first half of this chapter, we've looked at a number of large themes. And here they are. I'll give them to you so you can write them down. I didn't do this last time and people were asking me, so here you go. These are the large themes that we've seen over chapter 4. First, we saw that the source of the gifts is the ascended Christ. We talked about this, I think, about three or four weeks ago. Secondly, we saw that the content of the gifts here in Ephesians is one another. 
And I, I've stated to you multiple times that gifts are self-contained in and of themselves elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12 and uh, in one of Peter, Peter's letters. Uh, but here in Ephesians, it's talking about the content of the gifts as one another. Third, we talked about last time, the purpose of the gifts is service to the body toward unity. Guys, anytime anybody talks to you about spiritual gifts, anytime they come up, I want you to ask the question, is the thing that this person is talking about useful for service and love to the body? If not, you have to wonder why they're talking about it. Because in all the places gifts are mentioned, the whole point is service to the body. Now, the fourth part that we're going to cover today, and this is an overarching theme. This isn't one of my main points, but I just want to give it to you. The overarching theme for today is that the fulfillment of the gifts is a covenant community reflecting Christ. The fulfillment of the gifts is a covenant community reflecting Christ. I want to be careful that that word fulfillment is not misconstrued. I in no way mean that the only goal of the Holy Spirit is to build a covenant community, nor am I using that language just because we've implemented covenant. I know that a lot of people have been going, oh, Hans is using that lingo a lot more. No, guys, the reason I'm going to spend so much time today on helping you understand the text before us is because I want you to see that we're getting that language from the Bible, not just on our own volition. There are far too many passages that speak to the entire goal of the Holy Spirit as bringing ultimate glory to God by pointing to Jesus Christ. And so understand that what I'm saying here is that covenant community isn't the end. It's reflecting Christ that is the end goal of everything we do as Christians. But we'll talk about why covenant community is important for that. And so what I hope to show you today is that all of us walking out the love of Christ for one another, using our diverse talents to care for the church, This will ultimately be fulfilled in a covenant community that reflects Christ. And in that way, Christ will get the glory to a greater degree than any of us ever have thought of. And last week, Paul pointed out that Satan is in the middle of that, scheming to destroy that unity. And Paul told us in what we read last week that we can either be children that are tossed to and fro by false doctrine and whims of humankind, Or we can stand firm, fully equipped on the Word of God, taught what it is to follow Christ. And so today, as we do every Sunday, we're going to take that call very seriously to teach the truth of God so that we can walk it out. And we're going to look at a lot of Scripture to understand what Paul is telling us. So let's begin this morning by reading Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. Are you ready for this? Yeah? Okay. What we see here in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, I think is one of the most amazing statements in all of Ephesians. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Right away, what we see first here is, this is the first point you can jot down. Rather than children swayed by error, we are to be mature adults speaking the truth in love. Rather than children swayed by error, we are to be mature adults speaking truth in love. Well, key to this is that phrase, speaking the truth in love. What does that mean? I guarantee you that if you pulled people into various rooms and you went in and asked them individually what they thought that meant, you would have different answers. So I want to tell you what the Bible says that means. We could easily view this as a command to simply not lie to each other. Is that a good command? Don't lie to each other? Okay. You guys are scaring me. Is that a good command? Okay. Don't lie. It's a good command. Okay. And we're going to discuss that when we get to Ephesians 4.25 because that is correct. But Paul, as he has done throughout this letter, is actually speaking in shorthand here by bringing to bear a reference from the Old Testament. We talked about this a few times over the the course of Ephesians. Remember that Pharisees, scribes, rabbis, and really any devout Jew, when they speak something from the Old Testament, what they're trying to do is get the hearer to grab onto the context of that statement and bring it into play in the current discussion. And what we saw in chapter 4, verse 8, if you look back there, there is a quote there that is indented. 
And what we saw is that this was from Psalm 68, and Paul was bringing reference to all of Psalm 68. And this is easy to see here, isn't it? Because it's broken out, it's, it's uh, sectioned off, and most of your Bibles, it's indented, it's got cross-references. But if you look at your cross-references in 4.15, there's not really all that much there. Now, this is confusing for most people because they think, well, this is just Paul writing, but this is pulled from the Old Testament as well. How we know this is because if you look down a little bit in your, in your Bible, look at 4.25, he says basically the same thing. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, that has a cross-reference. And that cross-reference is to the book of Zechariah. And so for us to understand what Paul means by this idea of speaking the truth in love or speaking truth with your neighbor, we have to go back and we have to look at what is meant in Zechariah. But there's a bit of a problem. How many of you have ever read Zechariah? Look around, guys. How many of you think Zechariah is super easy to understand? Raise your hand. There's the problem, okay? Zechariah is very hard to understand. And so what we're going to do is we're going to zoom back from Ephesians here to Zechariah, And then we're going to zoom back even further, and we're going to look at the covenant idea throughout the Old Testament. And then I'm going to zoom back into Zechariah and zoom back into Ephesians, and hopefully by then, you guys, if you aren't motion sick, you will have the point of what Paul is trying to say. To understand any of the prophets, we have to understand the covenants of God with his people. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. Everybody say Torah. The Torah is a word in Hebrew that means law, instruction, precepts, many different things. But primarily, as it relates to the first five books, these books were instruction. Everybody say instruction. They were instruction for the people of Israel so that they could know their past, where they came from, who they were, and how to honor and worship Yahweh as his people. Now remember, they didn't have to earn covenant love. This is a a misunderstanding by most people. They didn't have to earn covenant love and faithfulness from Yahweh because he had already chosen them. Remember, he saved them by his own grace, and then he gave them the law to follow. The law wasn't given so that they could earn his grace. The Torah was intended to be instruction in how to live within that covenant and reflect the heart of Yahweh in righteousness, compassion, mercy, and justice to a world that needed to know who Yahweh was. So within the first five books of the Bible, you see this covenant instruction given in the same way on two different occasions. One is in the book of Exodus, and one is in the book of Deuteronomy, and I'll show those to you. First, let's go, turn with, your, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 19. Go ahead and open your Bibles up and go to Exodus 19. You still with me? Okay, I'm going to be checking in with you because I know this is a lot of info. Exodus 19, and let's take a look there at verses 3 through 6. Exodus 19, 3 through 6. And what we're going to see here is just a portion of the beginning of the the Mosaic Covenant. If you look up on the screen there, we're going to be going through this idea, and this in Exodus 19 is what's called the introduction to the law. Okay, you can write that down. Exodus 19 is the introduction to the law. And here's just a piece of what, uh, what that introduction is. Verses 3 through 6. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Interestingly, those are names that are used for Christians in the New Testament. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What he does here is he's saying in the intro, this is who you are and this is who I am. This is used all the time in the ancient Near East for treaties between conquering kings and the people they conquer. Okay? This is who you are, and this is who I am. Let me introduce you to the covenant we've made. Then, if you move on to Exodus 20, many of you will right away recognize what's in Exodus 20. There's a summary of the law of God, the summary of the covenants and instruction. Right there in 20 verse 1, he begins talking about what? What do you see in your Bibles there? Ten commandments. Okay, good. Got to keep you with me here. The ten commandments. Now, in Hebrew, these are the ten words. 
This is the highlight of God's law of righteousness and justice. Now, let's go through the laws really quick. Uh, This is something I find that we don't teach our children enough, (laughs) and we don't teach enough adults. So many adults don't even know what the Ten Commandments are. And I'm going to just summarize them here for you. First, worship Yahweh alone. You don't have any other gods. Second, you don't create idols to worship. Third, you don't ascribe the name of Yahweh to anything that is not of his character, or you don't know for sure he said. Fourth, you save one day in seven to give solely to worshiping Yahweh. The first four have to do with a covenant between Yahweh and who? Us. It's the vertical relationship. God and man. God and the individual. Okay? But then, number five is obey your parents as they are leading you within the covenant. Right? In American folk religion, we've turned this into a law by itself. You honor your parents. Guys, the point here was you honor your parents as they lead you in the ways of Yahweh. If they don't, you go to the elders of the church, and the elders of the church, or the people of Israel, would take them out and stone them. Right? And people all across America are honoring parents who are not honoring God. You honor your parents only as they honor God. Obey your parents as they're leading you within the covenant. Now, this was a hinge verse moving from the authority of God into the authority of people. And then number six begins the five words that you speak on how to interact with one another. Uh, Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't mischaracterize one another. And don't covet one another's lives. Now, who is that describing relationship between? Each other. Vertical relationship? Horizontal relationship? You cannot have a covenant with God if you don't also enter into relational covenant with human beings. That's what this is saying. First four are between God and man. Last six are between one another. So what we have is we have the intro, the summary of the laws, the four dealing with God and the six dealing with one another, and then comes the details of how to applicably live that out in detail. And this is chapters 21 through 23. You can read it on your own time. It goes into finite detail about little things in ways in order to fulfill the summary of the laws. Intro, summary, detail. Everybody say it with me. Intro, summary, detail. There's a reason I have you getting that, okay? Now, let's turn over to Deuteronomy, and you're going to see the same thing repeated in a much larger section. Everybody go to Deuteronomy 4 with me. Deuteronomy 4. And let's just look at Deuteronomy 4.1 there. Give me an amen if you're there. It says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. So he's going to teach him about the commands. Interesting, what did Jesus do with the, great, or with the Great Commission? He said, go baptize, and then what do you do to the disciples? You teach them how to obey all that I've commanded. It's very similar language. Okay, 4-1. So God says, I want to teach you how to live within my covenant. Then look at verses 5 through 8. I'm going to skip around here a bit. Look at verses 5 through 8. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, this is Moses speaking, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, in other words, the non-believers, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh, that's the capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, our God, is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I set before you today? Moses is saying, I want you to live like this because then people will see you and know that you are different. And what's the motivation behind this? Well, it's the same thing as the motivation for us as Christians. It's God's gracious, loving call. Fast forward to verse 37 and look at verses 37 through 40 with me. It says, and because he, God, loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord, Yahweh, is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, 
Because that's true, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Okay? So we're talking about the introduction here. He's telling them who they are and who he is and that they need to obey his law. Then chapter 5 comes. And in chapter 5, what we see is we see the beginning of the summary of the covenant. Notice in chapter 5 that there's a repetition of what? What is there in chapter 5? What do you see? Say it out loud. Ten commandments again. Why would he repeat it? Well, because Moses is trying to tell the people, guys, this is the summary of God's law. Okay? Now, this summary goes all the way through chapter 11. And there are a number of places where he summarizes the summary. One of them is in chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. This is what's known as the great Shema or the great Hear. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, all the time. <laughs> right? You guys get that? All the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses is giving a bit of a summary to the law here, even a summary to the summary about how do you follow the Ten Commandments? What's he say? Love the Lord your God. The Jews are called to hear and obey, not just to hear, but to obey, and then to teach their children how to obey. And then, if you want to read it on your own time, Deuteronomy 12 through 26 is the detail of the covenant that gets into minutia about what it is to follow the summary, what it is to love the Lord your God. So what do you see again? Just like with Exodus, we see introduction, summary, and detail. Everybody say it. Intro, summary, detail. Hans, you're boring us with the detail. I know, but just follow with me, okay? This is very, very important. Before we move on from Deuteronomy, turn with me just a little bit to the right to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, and we're going to be in verses 12 through 21. Because whenever we as Christians, especially Protestant Christians, hear about obedience or following the law, immediately we start thinking, ah, legalism. Is Hans saying we have to earn our salvation? Just so the record's straight, that is not what I'm saying. But anytime we hear about obedience, we start freaking out because the hyper-grace gospel has been sent out across the United States in massive ways, and people think that in order to have grace, you don't have law. In order to have grace, you don't have obedience. In fact, I have met people who sin intentionally so that they can say they're saved by grace. You think, who are those people? There's a lot of them, Right? And so what we see here is we see that God is using a lot of the same language that he uses in the New Testament about the fact that in order to obey, we have to have our hearts changed, just like we're talking about in the New Testament. Look at Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear him, the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Sounds like what we just heard in the great Shema, Right? Right? Okay. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Yet Yahweh set his heart in love on your fathers, that's grace, and shows their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are to this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Oh, that's a name given to Jesus. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore. That's a command, by the way, to love refugees. Love the sojourner, therefore. For you were refugees in the land of Egypt, sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. As Protestants, we know that our fleshly natures 
before we're justified and regenerated, don't want to obey Jesus. That's why we needed Jesus to come and live out perfect obedience to the Father and die in our place as a sinless sacrifice so we might be forgiven and accepted by the Father and enter into relationship with him. And we further know that he has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts and conform our hearts toward him. But this is just a New Testament idea, right? No, that's what we just read. Circumcise your hearts. Conform your hearts to love God. Moses knew that the people needed a heart change to actually desire to follow Yahweh. He knew, if you read through Deuteronomy, that they were going to turn aside from God's instruction to their own ways. And this is why God's promise of a new covenant, a new way of relating, was so full of hope for the Jews. Without God's gracious intervention, no human can obey. No human can stay within covenant faithfulness to Christ. It's impossible. So this is why God promised that by his grace, he would change our hearts. He would give us a new way of relating, a new covenant. This is from Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, he said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's covenant language, guys. He will be your God, we will be his people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. God promised that one day, by his grace, he would give his spirit to indwell in his covenant people so they might desire to follow him and obey his instruction. And this is what the Jews, the ones who were obedient, were longing for. And this is what we as Christians long for, is full obedience to the Savior that loves us and died for us. And so do you see at the 30,000-foot view, looking at the Old Testament, everybody take a breath. Do you see at the 30,000-foot view how important covenant faithfulness is to the people of God? You might say, well, Hans, that's great. That's for the Jews. But what I want to show you is no, It's different, yes, for the Old Testament, but the same idea is used in Paul's writings. And I'll show you how we know that. After God chose Abraham and his offspring from all the nations by grace to be his covenant people, how'd they do with that? Was that successful or was it a failure? It was a failure. They bombed it big time. And so they were looking for the promise of a Messiah to usher in a new covenant. Some did live within the law, As best as they could, their obedience to Yahweh, their use of sacrificial system in order to cleanse their sin once a year, and they were longing for this Messiah to come in and give new covenant. But many of the people, most of the people, did not obey at all nor seek the Messiah, and they just relied on their religion as a get-out-of-jail-free card when they died. Sounds kind of like American Christianity. And so you remember what happened. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to tell them, hey, wake up. Take this seriously. Follow Yahweh. Don't just base everything on your religion. Actually serve him. Actually obey him. Did they do it or did they not? They didn't. They didn't listen. And so God finally sent the Assyrians and the Babylonians to drag the people off into exile for 70 years as loving discipline. And at the end of those 70 years, some of the people begin to return. And so God sends the prophet Zechariah almost proactively to call these people to repentance and give them the hope of God's faithfulness. So, let's zoom in from the 30,000-foot view down into Zechariah. Go with me to the right of your Bible. If you hit Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, just turn back one book. Zechariah is one book back from the end of the Old Testament. And let's go to Zechariah 1. So we've got the 30,000-foot view that God operates in covenant with his people. And now we're going to come into Zechariah, where Zechariah is crying out, operate in covenant with your God. Let's look at one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, Yahweh, the Lord, was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, the people, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. What does this sound like, guys? Return to me and I will return to you. Be my people and I will be your God. It's covenant language. The prophet is calling the people to operate within the covenant with God. He declares that he's heard their cry. And he says to them, guys, I'm going to do far more than just bring you back to your homeland. Through the next few chapters, he goes into these intense visions. Intense visions where he starts to say to them, I'm going to forgive your sins, renew my covenant with you, and I'm going to bring you to the city of God and its temple because it will be rebuilt and God will return to live once more in your midst as your king. All of this was pointing to the ultimate fulfillment of Christ and Christ ruling and reigning physically. And we are stuck in that in-between time. Partway through Zechariah's time as prophet, a group from Bethel comes to ask if they should keep fasting. Not Bethel, the church in California, but Bethel. Okay? Turn to uh, Zechariah chapter 7 with me. This group comes from Bethel saying, hey, should we keep fasting as we've done in the past? And what God responds with through Zechariah is, wait a minute, this fasting, was it for you or was it for me? Was it so you could get me to do something on your behalf or was it actually worship? Do you do it for selfish purposes or are you actually obeying me? Because if you obeyed me, you'd be going beyond mere religious ritual. Look at Zechariah 7 verse 8. We're going to go through verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. I wonder how many people sitting in churches every Sunday are making their hearts diamond hard. The word is preached and they start thinking about lunch. The word is preached and they start thinking about if they agree or not. The word is preached and life doesn't get in because there's a refusal because we want to do what we want to do. This is what happened to Israel, and I think it's what happens still today. But after Zechariah reminds them of why they got exiled because of disobedience, he then reminds them of the gospel, the good news that God is faithful to his covenant and will restore it. Look at Zechariah 8, 7 through 8. Zechariah 8, 7 through 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Guys, hear the covenant language again? One person does. You hear the covenant language again? Now, you might think, Hans, you're trying to hammer this home. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Even when he restores his covenant with the people and calls them to obedience, he will call for faithfulness to the covenant. Not just, you're saved, I've redeemed you, but you're saved, I've redeemed you, so now act like my people. And here's how he says to do it. And I want you to notice the shorthand that he uses. Look at Zechariah 8, 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So fear not. And these are the things that you shall do. You see that covenant? This is what I'm going to do, and now this is what you're going to do. Not to earn his grace, but because his grace is already there. 
Look at what he says. These are the things that you shall do. Everybody read it out loud of what he says there. Speak the truth to one another. He's not just talking about don't lie. This is shorthand for live the truth in covenant with each other. Render in your gates judgment that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I We do not use that language in this house, young man. God hates certain things, people. He hates them with a vengeance. And if you read that list, it's amazing how much of that is in society and in the church. I hate these things, he says. God's shorthand for covenant faithfulness within the covenant community begins with speak the truth to one another. Does that sound familiar? That's from Ephesians 4. Commentator and theologian P.T. O'Brien states that there is considerable body of scholarly opinion which contends that the verb rendered to speak the truth really signifies here, live out the truth. In other words, actually live like you're my people. This is a statement that God is calling his covenant people to not just simply tell the truth, quote unquote, but to live out the truth of God's commands towards one another. And it is not just truth, because truth without love is harshness, and love without truth is sloppy agape. It's worthless. There is a... (laughs) I didn't invent that, just so you know. (laughs) What does it mean to love in truth? Well, there's a wonderful book that I've used for much of my study in Ephesians, and much of my study on this topic that I've shared with you today called Kingdom Through Covenant. It's about that thick. And it's by two guys named Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham, who are two highly regarded theologians at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I want to read to you their definition of love as shown throughout the Old Testament and as seen in Ephesians. And if you want to, you can come by my office. I can show it to you in the book. I did not make this up simply because we've stepped into covenant commitment in this church. Here is how they define love as read throughout the Bible. A covenant commitment to the other person, demonstrated in actions that seek the well-being of the other person. Let me read that to you again. A covenant commitment to the other person, demonstrated in actions that seek the well-being of the other person. Now, guys, I want you to see how amazing this is for a second. Let's take this as a filter and let's run it through really quick. Kelly, my wife, do I love her? A covenant commitment to the other person, demonstrated in actions that seek the well-being of the other person. Does that work? Yes, it does. If it doesn't, I'm in trouble and you should rebuke me. Okay. The other members of this church who I have devoted my life to, do I have a covenant commitment to them demonstrated in actions that seek the well-being of them? Does that work? So those of you that I've committed to, can I say I love you? Pizza. I love pizza. A covenant commitment to the pizza demonstrated in actions that seek the well-being of the pizza. No, it doesn't work because I eat the pizza. There's no well-being of the pizza. A total stranger who doesn't want a covenant with me and I don't want a covenant with them. Do I love them? Well, in a certain sense, because Jesus died for them, yes. But not this level of love. You see the difference, guys? This is love as God defines it for his people. We love God directly, yes, but we also love him by loving his people. You remember when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, right? Did he stop at one? What was the first one? Love God, straight out of the great Shema. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, spirit. But then he said, there's another one. What was that one, guys? And he pulled that not out of the great Shema, but from Leviticus 19.17. And notice this with me. This is hugely important. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus pulled this directly out of this verse because who's he talking about here? Who are the sons of your own people? To the Jew, that was other Jews in covenant commitment with Yahweh. It's not necessarily your neighbor down the street. We should love them too, yes, but not in the same level. How can we say, church, how can we say that we love Jesus 
when we so easily disregard his commands on how to love one another as if those commands were optional and only the first one remains? How can we say we love Jesus? I would submit to you, and you might say this is harsh, but I don't think we can. To love God is to love his people. So now you're beginning to see the context from the level of the fullness of the Old Testament, 30,000-foot view, down into Zechariah, where he pulls from. And now, let's go back to Ephesians 4, and we'll finish up with my last two quick points. But these points, honestly, they make no sense if you don't understand the weight behind what he's saying in Ephesians 4. Because, guys, if you look at Ephesians 4, and if you go back and you re-listen to the teachings, I've been laying this out for you in breadcrumbs, Verses 1 through 6 remind us of the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, your God is one. And what is all of 1 through 6 about? There is one God, one baptism, one faith, one Lord. And so what do you do? You maintain unity. Paul's using the same kind of language. And that's why I would submit to you that 1 through 6 is an introduction to the covenant. And then he goes from there and he steps into verses 7 through 10, which reminds us of who God is. He's our rescuer that has pulled us from the kingdom of darkness. And he's given us his gifts to one another, which tells us who we are. Introduction. That we are not our own, but we're rescued from the kingdom of darkness and made his own. And then verses 11 through 14 spoke to us of the necessity to operate in the truth of Scripture. The truth. Live the truth not be carried about by error in every wind of doctrine. I would submit to you, along with many other scholars, that Paul is lining up the new covenant here. He says, rather than being taken up by false believers and false prophets and false doctrine, we should instead then do what? Well, this is where verse 15 comes in. Rather than being taken out by people who are in error... He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, as it should, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, it seems to me that this is the structure of a covenant. And as I'll show you when we get down into verses, uh, verses 25 through the end of the chapter, Paul is going to be using six commands. Six commands as to what it is to walk as a Christian. It's a summary statement. Now, guys, remind me, there were four commands between God and his people, and then how many between one another? Six. Six. And I'll show those to you. And then he goes from there, from the end of chapter 4, into chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, 9, And that whole time he's talking about minutia, detail of how husbands and wives should relate, how children and parents should relate, how bosses and workers should relate. And he goes into minute detail about how Christians should operate within a covenant with one another. And so it seems to me that what Paul's laying out here is an intro, a summary, and a detail. And what he's doing is just as Zechariah did, he's saying New Testament church, return to God, and he will return to you. Be his people, and he will be your God. And just as he told the Israelites in Deuteronomy, if you can do this amazing work that only the Holy Spirit can do within you, the people around you will look at you and go, what people are there like this? That follow such an amazing God and live a life full of so much truth. Rather than being children swayed by error, we are to be mature adults speaking the truth in love. You see why I needed to take 45 minutes of your time to lay out what Paul meant behind that? He wasn't just saying don't lie. That's part of it. He was saying a whole lot more. Okay, everybody take a breath. That was a lot. I just gave you a covenant theology class in 45 minutes. Okay? Here's what we need to get from the rest of it as it applies from the text. And I'm only going to take a few more minutes of your time here. The next big point that we need to gather from today, after realizing all of the covenant behind this and that we are called to be covenant people, committed to one another and to God, 
The second thing I want you to write down is living the truth out within covenant faithfulness is the process that causes growth. Living the truth out within covenant faithfulness is the process that causes growth. Now, sure, can a person grow in spiritual maturity with their Bible sitting on a deserted island by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. But I would submit to you that it would be stunted if they were not operating within relationships. And this is why Paul says, again, in Ephesians 4.25, speak the truth with your neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul brings the entire weight in here to say, guys, there's something important about living in this committed relationship to one another. Paul's trying to help us to understand that if we are taught Christ correctly through the ministry of the word by faithful teachers, then we will be taught to put off our old nature of self-protection and selfishness and individualism. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will put on Christ's nature that's devoted to selflessness for one another. And the individualism that's left in us is used for proper purposes as we use our diverse gifts to serve one another. And if we do this, we will, look at verse 15, grow up into him who is the head into Christ. You see, we can't fully look like Christ by ourselves, but I think we can as a body. You see, a student perfectly trained will be like his master. Hans, are you saying that I can be sinless like Jesus? No. You will never be able to be sinless because you are stuck in this old body with old habits, old desires, old neural pathways that all drive us to sin. But dear saints, brothers and sisters, you have to understand that with the motivation of Christ's love and the power of the Holy Spirit and the support of one another, I believe we can grow into obedient servants of the King that live lives deeply devoted to Him. And when we make mistakes, which we do, we can immediately turn back to Christ to see Him mediate forgiveness on our behalf. And we can turn to our brother and sister that hasn't left because there's conflict, but instead is willing to sit and work as hard as it takes, as long as it takes to reconcile. This is what the community of Christ is supposed to be. And this is why we can't do it on our own. Guys, think with me practically about how change happens. I personally am going along on my merry way with all my baggage, my thought process, my old family systems, my own emotions, living life in a way that makes sense to me. Guys, how many people, their life makes sense to them but no one else? Most humans, right? But then a loving brother or sister comes alongside me and says to me, uh, this action that you're doing, it's actually causing harm. Well, I didn't know that before. Or at the very least, I didn't recognize the depth of it. I needed something external in relational motivation to tell me, hey, I should probably change that. That's why I tell people all the time that marriage is an environment given for sanctification. Because your spouse notices all your issues, don't they? Amen? Amen. Amen. But you know what is key about that relationship? It needs to be a relationship that is committed to walking with me as I grow. Because knowing that they are committed to me means I can trust that they will support me through the difficult process of change. And secondly, it means that I know that they are speaking truth out of the right motivation, love. Because they want the relationship to grow in health because they are still in it and committed to it. Faithfulness in the covenant commitment means that vulnerability and truth can flourish. Guys, think about it with me for a second. Are you going to speak the truth in love with another human being if you believe at all that speaking the truth will cause them to reject you? Will you speak the truth with them if you think there's even an iota of a chance that they will leave the relationship if you speak it? No, it'll keep you quiet. Only in committed relationship that come hell or high water will stick together will we finally be able to walk in truth. The consumeristic individualism that is found in the American church today is not biblical in any sense or fashion. I was with two pastors who I dearly love in Salem the other day, and I was talking to them, and they were asking me about uh, what we're doing as a church. And they said to me, why do you think it's so hard to get uh, Christians to commit to one another? And I gave my reasons. And I, I turned back to them, and I said, why do you guys think so? And I'm not kidding you. Same exact time, same exact intonation, they both said, America. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> we're individuals. We don't answer to nobody. America. And right now, some of you are super, super, how can he say that? Is he not a patriot? 
No, I love my country. We're just stupid individualists sometimes. In that book I mentioned to you from Wellam and Gentry, they have this quote on the idea. They say, contrary to the ideals of American heritage, in which we focus on the individual, Paul begins by focusing on community and on our corporate life together here in Ephesians 4. Then and only then, from 4.17 onward, does he deal with day-to-day life as individuals. Even then, he is concerned largely with relationships. Now, individualism runs strong in Western culture and in the American dream. We exalt the individual who can rise from circumstances or great deprivation or poverty and excel in sports, education, or acting to become a national idol or even the president. There is, however, a strong emphasis in this text in Ephesians 4, as well as elsewhere in the Scriptures, on our belonging to a community and on our corporate role and responsibilities before considering our role as individuals. Church, Paul has seen here, or Paul has said here in Ephesians 4, that teachers are to equip the saints with the truth so that the saints can then play a role in the body with one another. And this is the process of living out the truth. And church, this will and has already gotten very messy at times. Very, very messy. There will be hurt and pain and there will be conflict. But I will tell you the same thing that I've told many couples that are about to get married. In those moments where conflict happens and you hate one another, it is only your covenant commitment to Jesus that will cause you to remember your covenant commitment to the other person and sit down as many times as it takes to reach reconciliation. And in that hard process, you will find that both of you will grow. But you must be committed to Christ and one another, or else the enemy will happily step in and cause division. Mission, we must be a church that lives out the truth of God's word and covenant faithfulness. Now, you might be a new believer here today. You might be sitting here going, what did you just talk about for the last hour? So what I want to do is I want to summarize it even more for you. If you know nothing about the word and you don't know how to live out the truth, but this is calling to you, the spirit is saying to you right now, I want that. I want commitment and love and faithfulness. I want to simply tell you what this whole book is about. It is about the Father God so loving you, so loving the world, which includes every one of us, that he sent his only beloved son to selflessly sacrifice himself so that each one of us could be forgiven and accepted by him. He died on the cross in our place for our sins so that you and I might be reconciled to our creator. And when he rose three days later, he proved that his death was successful in conquering our sin and death and hell. And what he requires of each one of us is that we would repent from our former allegiances, our allegiance to ourself and to our idols, And that we would turn to him and be saved. That we would turn to him and let him be Lord, Savior, and King. And that we would be baptized in his name, brought into the community of faith. Now, if you truly desire that today, if you're a person who doesn't know Jesus, and you hear the selflessness of this God, and you want to see the selflessness of this God overflow into the selflessness of his people, I would beg of you to come be part of this community of faith and to walk with us in that selflessness so that we can all grow together. We need one another. And so I'd be happy to talk with you in the back if you want to know what that's like and what it is that we must do to walk with him. I'd love to talk with you after service. But for those of us in this room that do know who Christ is, to my brothers and sisters, if we choose to lay down our lives for those around us, we will be growing into Christ by serving and loving one another. If we do that, we will be a healthy body of believers and we will find that. This is the last point. A healthy body of Christ will grow because it builds itself up in love. That's Paul's whole point here. A healthy body of Christ operating within covenant commitment will grow because it builds itself up in love. If you look at the structure of this, you're going to see that Paul is talking to both individuals and he's talking to the corporate. Just notice it with me really quickly. In verse 15, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. That's a statement to individuals. And then he bookends it on the other side with, if we do that, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's corporate. Individuals, 
feed into the corporate. And in the center of it is this idea of being a body joined with the head, working together as a body equipped when each part is working properly. Earlier in Ephesians, it said that the teachers are to equip the people for the work of ministry. This says that they are equipped and that they participate in the body life. How are we equipped? By the teaching of the word. We went through that last time. But look at this. This says the body is equipped. What's it equipped with? It's equipped with you. Every single one of you in your individualism, in the diversity of who you are, you are part of how God Jesus Christ has equipped this church to live out our ministry in this community. Paul's metaphor of the body cannot be separated from the Old Testament picture of covenant community or of believers that live lives of love towards each other. For us to accomplish this end, each of us must lay down our lives, our selfishness, and our rigid individuality for the sake of one another. And so I want to give you a couple of application points today. First, I want to give you this question. Is my covenant commitment to Christ seen in my covenant commitment to his people? And if you're a person that says, yeah, I just love everybody. Guys, is it seen in commitment? Is it tangible? The first and foremost reason that we moved to a model of covenant commitment is to show covenant commitment is to give us a tangible way to say to one another, I am committed to you. You know, it's funny if Kara came up to me in 17 years and said, you know, I got this great guy, Dad. Yeah, honey? Yeah, he says he loves me dearly and wants to take care of me for the rest of my life. That's awesome. So when's the wedding? Oh, you know, he's really not into formal signs and shows of covenant commitment, so he just said it to me. Isn't that good? Okay, all the fathers in the room, tell me what you would do to that young man. That's why I love you, Dallas. But if she comes to me and says, I've met this amazing man and he wants to stand before God and his church body and the witnesses that will hold him accountable to the vows that he states because he wants to be a husband that gives his life to me in commitment, I will say, where is that man and can I shake his hand? He is my new son-in-law. I wonder what the Father in heaven thinks about so many people in the bride that are like, eh, I'm not into formal shows. It doesn't make sense to me. I want you to ask, biblically, if you're not into covenant commitment, why not? And I want you to ponder that. Jesus did not divide covenant commitment to God and covenant commitment to his people. He paired them together. So my question is, why do we divide them? Secondly, there are so many in this room So many of you that have already stepped into this idea and you're learning what it is and you are doing amazingly well. You know, it's funny when we had the apocalypse, right? Right? The apocalyptic eclipse, right? When everybody freaked out. The water situation this week was like kind of the same thing, right? We're all gonna die! It was so cool to watch some of you checking in on others, just seeing if you had water, making sure you're okay. And I said to myself, man, this church is learning, they're growing that's not the only thing I've seen. I've seen so much love between you. So here's what I want to encourage you in. This is an application for this week. I want to encourage you to thank one another for the service you see in each other. As you see people volunteer in kids' ministry, week in and week out, putting their energy and time into those kids. As you see people leading in worship, greeting, doing security, info table, hospitality. As you see people tearing down and putting up. Many of you don't even know this, but A number of the college students who are here on a regular basis, man, they're here every Sunday. Ben is the curtain guy, right? Ethan is here regularly helping with sound. Cameron's here regularly helping with sound. Josh is here serving. JT is here every week, right? Love these people. Tell them thank you for serving me and serving Jesus. And guys, there's a hundred names that I haven't mentioned. Thank one another. And as you serve each other throughout the week, grow in an attitude of thanksgiving for God and for one another. And lastly, pray for one another. Pray for the people in your community groups. 
Pray for each other to grow up into Christ as part of the body of Mission Fellowship. Guys, if we can actually live out the truth of God's heart and love, we will find that each of us grow like never before. But more importantly than just our individual growth, we will grow together into a body of believers where each part is equipped and unified by the Holy Spirit, joined together with Christ and with one another. That body of Christ will be so attractive to the world around us that we will grow in number as new believers of Christ step into this covenant community. And we will grow in maturity as all of us are sanctified to become more and more like the selfless Lord that we serve. And if you're a person here today that this is all scary to you because you are an introvert or you have deep shame sitting in the back of your head from something that's been done to you or something that you've done, I want to give you a word of encouragement. I have never seen the chains of shame broken down more so than when someone finally brings that into the light to people that are covenant, in covenant commitment to them and says, look at what has happened. And then you're prayed for, you're cared for, and you're loved. And that shame slowly but surely goes away. If you're a person that relationship scares you, I want to remind you today that that's what you were created for by a God that operates eternally in relationship.